Welcome to the Expat Cast. This is the podcast where expats share their stories about fitting in, standing out, and every mishap on the journey to finding home abroad. I'm your host, Nicole. My life abroad in Germany is ending, uh, what, like a week and a half from me recording this? I'm recording it ahead of time because this is my last day with my couch, <laughs> which is my last remaining surface on which I can podcast. So normally I would wait and record this closer to the date, but that's not going to work out this time. So here I am recording ahead of time. I'm also mid-defrosting my freezer and fridge. I'm mid-cleaning up some furniture that's getting picked up later tonight. I am mid-preparing my cat for a vet appointment. There's a lot going on, but I am excited that my move is at last almost here. And I am incredibly excited to bring you guys this week's episode. So when I say NPR... Most U.S. Americans or people who have lived abroad in the U.S. probably know exactly what I'm talking about. For those of you who don't, it stands for National Public Radio, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It is the publicly funded and listener-supported radio programming in the U.S. NPR has also done a great job of branching out into podcasts, so a lot of people around the world know them from podcasts like This American Life or Serial. There's a million more to name. Suffice it to say, I am an NPR nerd. In <laughs> my last day in the U.S., I was living in Chicago at the time, and I was a member of the local NPR station. As a member, you can come and visit the Chicago headquarters, which are one of the main headquarters. So my very last day in Chicago before heading back to my parents' house and then moving to Germany, like nearly six years ago now, I spent going to the NPR headquarters on Navy Pier in Chicago. It was amazing. I had a great time and I'm so happy that that's how I spent my time. <laughs> so I hope now I've convinced you that I am the nerd that I claim to be. And today's guest is Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. She is a former NPR correspondent. You might recognize her name or her voice from her various programs she's been on. We talk more about her career there in the episode, so I'm not going to repeat ourselves by sharing it here. I'll let her share about her life. Soraya now lives in Berlin, Germany, and has her own podcast called Common Ground Berlin. I highly, highly recommend it. We talk about it later in the episode, and it was such a delight to get to talk to her and and hear more about her as, as a person, not just a radio voice and not just an amazing host, but a human being who's had a very exciting life. So enjoy. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, uh, and I'm currently in Berlin, Germany, and am originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. That's where I was born. Uh, But in my case, I'm also the child of immigrants. My mother uh, was an immigrant from Germany and my father was an immigrant from from Iran. And they met in Milwaukee, which don't ask, but (laughs) that's how that happened. So, And how long have you been in Berlin? I've lived here since September 2012. Um, I moved here after uh, a stint in Cairo for National Public Radio. And before that, I was in Afghanistan. So this was my sort of first Western assignment. Uh, and it was so wonderful that I we I should say not just myself, but my husband decided to stay. We, we've decided to retire here. And our son uh, has joined us from California. And he now works here and lives here as well. 
Wow. Okay. So it was a big family move in the end. <laughs> in the end, yes. And you mentioned uh, NPR. I'm not, I'm, I'm guessing some people will recognize your name or your voice. <laughs> um, anyone who isn't um, an NPR listener, maybe you can explain a little bit about why we would recognize your voice. <laughs> sure. Um, I was a, a foreign correspondent for National Public Radio for a fair, fairly long time. I started in 2006, opened the Cobble Bureau for NPR, and then uh, continued until uh, just the beginning of 2020 is uh, when I quit and decided to do my own podcast and uh, work on a book and stay here in Germany and just sort of enter a different phase of my life. But yes, I, I was with NPR for 13 years. So walk us through, what was your first move abroad? Where was that? And, and what was the situation there? Yeah, sure. I mean, actually going through all the places I've lived abroad could take us the entire show and then maybe a second <laughs> episode. But uh, to start out, I was uh, just, I was around seven years old. It might have been a few months before or after when we moved to Iran. Um, my father decided that he wanted to take his little uh, newfangled American family back to his home country. And so uh, that's where I lived. I mean, basically, that was my first move overseas. I should mention before that, ever since, I mean, certainly before I can remember, my mother would take us to Germany. Uh, at one point, I was there for, in fact, a year and went to kindergarten in Germany. And so I've traveled has sort of been pretty much part of my life since I can remember it. Um, but yes, Iran is, is was the first place that we actually moved to. And I have to admit, I was gravely disappointed when we arrived in Tehran, the capital, which is where we moved initially. My father had promised me when we left Milwaukee that we would be living in a tent and we would have camels. This was sort of how he got me out of Milwaukee and to cooperate. <laughs> and I get to Tehran and it's like skyscrapers and much larger than yeah. Milwaukee. So it was... Uh, quite disappointing initially um, to, to be there. But I grew to really enjoy my time in Iran. And I actually went to a British Iranian school initially in Tehran, and then later uh, to an American school in Shiraz, which is where we moved to ultimately a few years later. So did you grow up speaking English, German, and Farsi? Yes. I mean, English is my mother tongue. You know, that's sort of what I had first and foremost, and also with my schooling. But I certainly was speaking Denglish, as we like to call the German-English <laughs> uh, mix here in Germany uh, at the beginning. And then my father, when we moved to Iran, insisted that we learn Farsi. Uh, and I, at the time, I remember resenting him for it. I mean, he would take me on daily walks even before I started school, and he would be pointing to things and saying, this is that, this is that, this is that. And now I actually am very appreciative because as a child, you just tend to to hold on to languages or absorb languages much faster. You don't have to think about it as much as you do when you're older and your brain isn't quite as flexible. <laughs> I was curious to ask about your experience in Germany with connection to the German language, but I, I imagine then you had a bit of a leg up with some some Danglish in the background. <laughs> well, I certainly did. And it's funny, the way I learned German, I mean, I had, a, as a, again, I went to school in Germany for brief periods. One was kindergarten. That was almost, that was the full year from what my mother tells me. And then uh, I went to, I think it was third grade. I was there for three or four months um, because again, we were somehow transitioning from one place to the other. And I ended up uh, being in school here for a while. But in terms of uh, learning German, I, I basically learned it by being a kid and being here every summer uh, during my formative years, living with my grandmother who spoke no English, and basically uh, hanging out with German kids, having you know friends that were only German speaking. 
And then uh, also these, uh, what my grandmother, or I guess what you say in German, Klatsch magazines, you know, these these magazines that are kind of like if the American equivalent would be People or Us or whatever. This is the kind of stuff my grandmother read. She only had an eighth <laughs> grade education. And so I learned to read German from those magazines. And so I didn't really have formal schooling, but became fluent in German. It was later as a reporter or as a correspondent for NPR and just also uh, in the course of other international work that I did, that I needed to learn more formal German, like college level German, you know, because you're conducting interviews with officials and, and that sort of thing. So you're not going to be necessarily using the phrases found in People magazine. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. Between the, the magazines, the, the sort of grocery store magazines and the school grounds, it might be, yeah, I guess, slightly different vocabulary when interviewing. Slightly different about- vocabulary. <laughs> yes. But I'm at, so I'm self-taught, though, uh, when it comes to German. And uh, I do German talk shows. I just did one the other night, Phoenix Hunde. So my German must be good enough for them to invite <laughs> me on. So when you were growing up, moved around um, several times, like you were saying, you had sort of this... Um, international upbringing and then when you started to hit adulthood like I, I feel like it could go one of two ways right either you're like oh gosh I'm glad my life's you know sort of in my own hands now and I can just stay put and not have to move anymore or it could go the other direction which I'm guessing is how it went which is this has been amazing I want more and I'm so excited to build an adult life where I get to experience even more of the world so so what was that phase like for you back then well, it was actually thrust upon me initially. I mean, my we came back to the States right before the revolution in Iran, uh, the, the revolution that put in place the theocracy that's there now. And so we returned in 1978. Unfortunately, my father passed away uh, in a car accident in 1980. So our lives were sort of in upheaval. My brother ended up moving back to the Midwest with my German aunt and uncle. I stayed in Maryland, which is where we were at the time when my father passed away and moved in with a French teacher. And then um, I opted, I mean, obviously college took me to a different location. I went to University of Maryland in College Park. So I was uh, closer to Washington, D.C. And then ultimately decided I wanted to be a journalist and an international correspondent because, yes, I definitely enjoyed that international aspect to my life and thought journalism or foreign correspondence would be a way for me to continue that. Now, that that wasn't an easy journey to travel on at the time when I was making this decision. You still didn't have that many women going into that field. And foreign correspondence often meant war correspondence. So even like first war in the, in the Persian Gulf, uh, that ended up when we were trying to remove Saddam Hussein the first time uh, the United States was, uh, I found it very difficult to be able to go there as a woman reporter that I, I just wasn't able to do it. So it took me a while to actually fulfill that dream. And that required traveling around the United States. So from Maryland, I moved up to New York and then back to Maryland and then um, to New York again <laughs> and then to California, um, to the Los Angeles Times. And that's where I first got to do the foreign correspondence that I wanted to do. And that was back in 2000. Um, And so after, you know, basically, initially I went to Israel and to to Egypt. And then after that, 9-11 happened. And that's when my foreign career took off. And I was able to fulfill that dream of mine to become a foreign correspondent and actually live in a variety of places. Of course, they weren't uh, the nice... uh, cushy places that some people might <laughs> sort of equate with foreign travel. But again, I, I moved to Afghanistan in uh, 2006, ultimately, but initially in 2001, I was in Iran and I was uh, covering uh, Iraq to some extent. I was based in Israel from 2002. So I was covering a lot of conflict. And then ultimately, 
went to, to Afghanistan, which was my became my first love. I was just absolutely fascinated by the Afghan story. And so when NPR offered me the chance to open the bureau there, I jumped at it, even though uh, it did actually split up my family for a while, which was not really uh, the intended consequence of having uh, a foreign correspondence lifestyle. But that, that was required. I mean, I could not really take my son in high school to Afghanistan initially, and my husband stayed back with him. Okay, so you were you were. <laughs> I was about to say commuting, but that, I guess it's not called commuting when one part of the family is in the U.S. and the other is in Afghanistan. It's quite quite a distance. But you basically were visiting and, and maintaining the family life from from there. Wow. It was very difficult. I mean, I didn't see my husband for nine months, and um, my son uh, for even longer than that, actually. Uh, so because I had to set up the bureau, I couldn't really commute back and forth. Um, you know, it is halfway around the world. So we did a lot of laptop meals where they would be having breakfast and I would be having dinner or vice versa. Um, and we would sort of talk to each other in real time via Skype back then, I think was what we were using. Because I don't Yeah, think they, but what years yeah. was this? This was 2000, the end of 2006, beginning of 2007. And then my son ended up going to college at that point. Let me, I, let me think about the time frame here. He was 17 and a half when I left to go to Afghanistan. And then he graduated from high school and went to uh, UC Davis. And well, my uh, husband stayed with him for the first year of college. My, my son went to dormitory, but he was at UC Davis. So he was very close to where we were living just to make sure everything was okay. And then he moved to Afghanistan with me and got a job there. So my husband and I were together, but our son stayed in California. I'm like just sitting here catching up to the fact like all of those places that you mentioned, you you lived and moved. Part of me is, is distracted being like, wow, this is so exciting. And, and I want to hear more about all of that. And then the other part of me is like, oh my goodness, like, did you... Did you just have a suitcase? Like you couldn't have had things. Like I'm just distracted by the the everyday aspect of it. <laughs> well, to especially Afghanistan. I mean, when I got to Kabul airport at the time, it was just this basically this this room with wires hanging from the ceiling. Electricity in Kabul was something that was on for a few hours every three days, so you had to get a generator, and uh, that made it very difficult because. With recording, as you know, you have to have silence. You can't really have loud noises in the background. So uh, to, in order to record my broadcasts or whatever, I had to turn everything off and basically do it by candlelight and rely on battery power to make sure you know that we were connected. Um, and it was very difficult. I had six suitcases, actually, that I did take with me. Because I had to have my whole life in there, um, you know, all and plus all the recording equipment, you know, for right, yeah, hours, so. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and then the clothes. I mean, you're going to be wearing local clothes anyway. As a woman, you're not going to be wearing what you would wear in the West. And so I did purchase things in in Kabul. But yeah, uh, in terms of furniture and and all that, I mean, anything that you would put in a house, that all had to be purchased uh, locally. And uh, so. It, it took a while to sort of build up the bureau and, and my life there. And it was very funny. My editor, who was this uh, great guy who had been a foreign correspondent himself, and he loved uh, Persian carpets. And he and I shared this love of Persian carpets. But he came to the bureau six weeks after I set it up. And he's like, there's just not enough carpets here. And I'm like, well, is NPR paying for this? And he's like, no. And I said, well, then you're going to have to wait for me to build up my repertoire of Persian carpets. So, 
<laughs> Maybe you can write it into the budget as um, it helps uh, exactly. get, like um, uh, dampen the sound. So it's yeah. Well, I had to already write very strange things into the budget. For example, um, we it's a very Muslim culture, obviously in Afghanistan, and there is uh, this aid or celebration uh, in the in the Muslim calendar where you have to sacrifice a goat or in a cow, if it's a larger staff or whatever. And, and this is, I mean, you have to do this, you know, if, so I had to actually purchase uh, a cow and two sheep uh, to be able to accommodate the staff and try to figure out how to write that into the budget as production costs uh, was, was interesting. And then, uh, yeah, it was, uh, there were some definitely uh, very interesting times in Afghanistan that went far beyond the stories that I reported on, which were all fascinating as well. I, I really enjoyed my, my time in Afghanistan, I was there full-time for four years and then part-time for two years. And then after that, I started going back once a year up until uh, the Taliban takeover in August of uh, 2021. Since then, I have not been able to go back. <laughs> the headquarters that you built up there, did they, they stayed after you left? They did. Yeah, I established the bureau, but that bureau was closed, um, I think. I want to say a couple years ago, I can't remember now the exact date, but they did end up closing it and moving it to Pakistan. Uh, that would became the, and then now, of course, uh, I mean, it was probably a good decision in the end, given the fact that the Taliban probably would not have allowed a Western bureau uh, to stay there. Um, it's become very, very difficult for women to work. I mean, it's interesting because what I mentioned before about how at the, at the time where I decided to be a foreign correspondent, it still was not really a women's game. It very much became a women's game. I mean, all the, the recent wars and everything, you have a lot more women covering it. And it's it's been, I think it's actually changed the coverage in many ways that you see and hear and read um, from these areas. And mm -hmm. it makes me proud to know that I was part of that wave. Yeah, I was wondering when you when you say that there were barriers and hurdles back then, would you say that they were more individual, like people not seeing this as a viable option or structural in terms of the societies were just not and allowing that? Well, I think, yeah, structural in the sense that I think the profession just was it was it's journalism was a male dominated profession. And in some ways, perhaps it still is. I don't you know, I, I can't really judge, for example, anchors, the number of anchors across the country. But it does seem like it's it's changed and it's become certainly foreign correspondents became a much more uh female profession. I mean, you do would see women doing a lot more and being in war zones and I don't know. I mean, it's. I, I think it's both structural, and I think it's. It's also just comes on the person. It becomes a, a a problem or whatever of the personalities that were in charge of these various media organizations, and then it just things just again they evolve. At some point, you do have women at the top as well, and you do have people being more accepting of seeing women in the field. I mean, Christiane Amanpour is a perfect example of a woman who really. Uh, broke through that glass ceiling. I mean, you know, we have, uh, even on a domestic level, having women sort of covering the top beats, that's that's still relatively new, at least it's in, in my lifetime, <laughs> and it's, yeah. I'm not that old yet, um, so, <laughs> and I'm still working. So yeah, it's, it's definitely something that uh, had to be changed both, I think, structurally and just, just in people's minds, you know, in, in societies uh, in, in general. You mentioned after you mentioned that you, after living in Afghanistan, also had lived in Egypt. Yes, is that where you went to next? I did. That was supposed to be sort of a, an easier time for me, you know, after doing four years in Afghanistan, and that really was a twenty four seven job. We would take breaks every six to eight 
to nine weeks or whatever, my husband and I, and we would go somewhere nice like Cambodia or whatever for a week or so just to get away from not just the, the dangers and the extreme amount of work that had to be done, but also the sexism. I mean, it's a very misogynistic culture. And it was very difficult for me as a, as a Western woman or a Western raised woman. Um, and even Iran is like Western by comparison to the way it is in Afghanistan. So you really needed that mental health break every so often to just get away from it. But yeah, so Cairo was supposed to be, uh, that was my next uh, stop for NPR. And it was supposed to be a more like I would be covering the broader Middle East. It was supposed to be more think pieces. And, but then, of course, what we weren't counting on uh, was that six months into my assignment in Cairo, that that uh, the Arab Spring was going to break out. Right, so I was became, thinking the timeline yeah, in my so, head is <laughs> so that became like a, a very much a war uh, a war situation for me. Where I, everywhere from Libya, you know, Tunisia was less of a war. I mean, there was some fighting, but it was. I mean, Libya was definitely far worse. Egypt was really bad. I mean, it was it was so bad the transition initially and the people dying. I mean, it was it was exciting, but it just it just was amazing to have a front seat to this. But it was very very difficult. And again, working just way too many hours, um, you know, it, it just became exhausting. Yeah, so I did that for two years in Cairo. And then at that point, uh, Germany was opening up for a year. So I was asked, do you want to come for a year? I was like, yeah, sure. I'd actually like it to be longer. But, you know, and wasn't really clear whether the person I was replacing uh, he was on a fellowship. Uh, I wasn't sure if he was coming back, although it didn't seem like he would be. So I figured that I would get to stay in Germany, and I did. It became my longest assignment. Um, I was uh, six years. I was the bureau chief for NPR in in Germany and covered uh, Central Europe. And then, of course, what happened? The Ukraine war initially in 2014. Yeah, so, I was going to say, so, were, you, were you sitting there the first year or two being like, okay, okay, no wars this time. No, Come war, on. No wars. Cool. Yeah. And then... And then Exactly. So then <laughs> in 2014, um, they called me up and they're like, Soraya, we really need you to go to Kiev. You know, th that was at the time when it hadn't quite started yet, but was about to start. So that was when Maidan happened. And then basically the government was overthrown, or I should say the, the Russian backed president, you know, ran away and all that stuff. But that was while I was there. So I had 14 hours to educate myself about a conflict that I really didn't know anything about other than as a consumer, a regular consumer of news. So it took, took a while, but I, w I mean, my husband always helped me out in these things. He would do a lot of research for me and sort of have me set up. And then I was, I was trying to arrange the logistics. Like, do I need a visa? You know, I had no idea. I'd never been to yeah. Eastern Europe. I went and, and that became my war for a while. I covered that on and off uh, through 2017. And then, yeah, I mean, this, this more, most recent iteration, which is far more serious, I mean, obviously, when I was uh, in Ukraine, that was the time where Crimea was taken and there was a lot of fighting in the east in Donbass, which I covered. But it wasn't like now where the whole country is under attack by Russian forces. And and uh, I haven't been covering that part of it. And if your question is going to be, do I miss it? Um, I did at the beginning. I thought, oh, I would love to. I mean, because I love Ukraine. That was actually one of my favorite stories I've ever done, just covering that whole conflict. But I just, frankly, I think I'm warred out, if that's a verb. Um, so I... <laughs> I'm quite happy to be here in Berlin and do talk shows. <laughs> I was going to say, especially because you weren't necessarily seeking it out for most of this. I mean, yeah, yeah. No, it's just so people started to make jokes about if I was assigned somewhere, get ready, a war was coming next. So right, it right. It seemed to happen everywhere I went. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad for you that you are now able to be in a phase where it's um, less war coverage and and more talk shows. <laughs> yeah, and, and let's talk, let's get into this, this whole Germany era. I mean, did you... 
How long did it take before you were like, yeah, no, I would like to be here, to stay here, to retire here, as you said, to really put down the roots? I think a couple years. I mean, I always loved Germany. I mean, again, I'm, I'm half German and did spend for my formative years in the West, not here in Berlin. I have to admit, I did come here as a 14-year-old um, for the first time to Berlin and just fell in love with that Cold War era because that was when it was still a divided city. Same when I was 18, I came back and actually went to East Germany for the first time on a tour, fell in love with Alexanderplatz, uh, you know, the big television tower, that iconic tower. And in fact, I live within view of it now. I insisted when we moved here that we got an apartment in the East and or the former East and that, you know, I, I wanted to be able to see that. Very <laughs> so, cool. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, my husband and I both, I mean, Eric had followed me. He, he ended up not coming to Cairo with me. He stayed in Afghanistan because he loved his job so much, but both of us were just sort of worn out. I mean, it's a very draining thing to be in these sort of high impact, high danger situations where the culture is completely foreign to anything that you know. You know. I mean, I, I was more familiar with Afghan culture than Eric was. But so both of us, when we got here, it took us a, a minute to sort of find our bearings. And Berlin can be, there's this, something known as the Berliner Schnauze or the Berlin mouth, you know, basically where people are very, they can be very nasty. I mean, I think New York City has that reputation where people can sort of be in your face. Uh, it definitely is a, a problem here for people who or perhaps used to the California or the American sort of, hi, how are you doing today? Have a nice day. You know, you don't get that here. <laughs> yeah, so, no. um, yeah, so that took a little getting used to. And Berlin, you know, where they say poor but sexy, you know, it definitely is. A, it can be a really dysfunctional city. And I really get it when Germans say there's Germany and then there's Berlin. It's like Berlin is not really part of Germany. It, it is very different than than other German cities. So that that part of it took a little while. And the weather, of course, you know, I was used to at this point being in in North Africa, which is, you know, sunny, California, which is sunny. Um, and so in Afghanistan, not so sunny, but still. So it was really hard to get used to the winters here in Central Europe yeah. at first. But again, after a few years, I mean, I, I just told Eric, I said, I really love this job. I hope I get to stay forever. Well, at some point, NPR, you know, it's in fairness, they wanted other people to be able to rotate through the bureaus too. And so it was kind of getting time for me to move on. And we just decided we didn't want to move on anymore. <laughs> so, so yeah, so that uh, is how we ended up deciding to stay here. And when you were, when it became your choice and not just based on the job, was there ever a moment of like, well, it could be anywhere in Germany or was it always Berlin? I think it's Berlin just because of the cosmopolitan international nature of Berlin. I mean, my, well, my husband now is starting to speak German better since he's working for a German network, even though his job is uh, chief content editor for English uh, broadcast, but he still has to speak German because most of the people at Deutsche Welle, they want to have the conversations in German about feedback and that sort of thing. So he's had right. to pick it up. My son doesn't really speak German very well at all. And he's working for a, a German company, but English is the, is the language that's used there. So I think the idea of being in a place that's in Germany, but still allows them to speak English, I do scold them at times. And, you know, I say things like, well, if you have issues with having to fill out German forms for taxes or health or whatever, don't come running to me for everything. <laughs> you guys need to pick this up. So, and they, to their credit, they are doing that. So I think for now, Berlin is sort of how we're seeing it. Um, my mother is getting older. She, in the meantime, has moved back to Germany and lives in in her like hometown area in uh, Lower Saxony. She lives in Osnabrück right now. So I've thought about maybe moving closer there. But for now, I think we're, 
we're good here in Berlin. And, um, you know, we, I, I should mention we have a small place in southern France. I know it sounds very exotic, but it's an old house that we spent, did a lot of reservation, uh, renovations on in uh, like a, a market town in southern France that's not in Provence or something. It's, it's more closer to the Spanish border. So we do go there periodically as well. And it is really far from Berlin. It would be closer from western Germany. But, yeah, I think for now Berlin is sort of what, our goal is, I think, long-term to stay. I mean, it's so dynamic there. I can understand, yeah, Berlin offers a lot of appeal in terms of, I think you could live and die there and never fully grasp that place. It's just so layered and and it's so many different things for everyone. Yeah. And I mean, unlike a lot of people do not like Berlin, you know, and they don't stay here. It, it is really a love-hate kind of thing. I don't know anybody who's sort of lukewarm about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of things you have to put up with here. It has definitely that sort of former Soviet approach to the bureaucracy and everything. So it's not super friendly in that regard. I mean, German bureaucracy, as as you know, the stereotypes are quite true and it's not easy oh God, yeah. no matter where you are, but yeah. but it is it takes on a special a special meaning here, especially when you've got the Berliner Schnauze, you know, this Berlin mouth thing uh, going on alongside it. So it's, right. <laughs> and it's just there, there, it's overwhelmed. So it can, it can drive people crazy. Some neighborhoods are not as clean or pristine as others. I mean, I remember the first time I went uh, to, I think it was Augsburg in the South, and I was just like looking at the streets going, holy moly, I've never seen such clean streets in my yeah. life. It's like, this is definitely not Berlin. You definitely have to love it or you you can't stay. It's 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 hard. So one one thing I wanted to get into with you is okay. So for context, my day job is as a librarian, and I specifically work in the department that deals with periodicals like newspapers, magazines, etc. So I have a lot of contact with German media landscape, and I'd be interested to talk about that with you because I, I find personally um, a lot of really interesting nuances and differences between reporting styles and approaches in Germany versus the U.S. Do you notice a lot of differences or similarities? What's your impression um, comparing the two countries? It's interesting. There were some things as a reporter here that were really shocking to me, and that is that apparently a lot of media outlets here pay for interviews. That is a common thing. It's an honorarium. It's completely antithetical to what we would do in the U.S. You know, you do not pay people for interviews. That ends up being, I mean, you can reimburse expenses or whatever, but uh, the, the payment aspect sort of casts this influential light that, or that is not necessarily attractive or something that's considered ethical, certainly uh, by American standards. But here it's, it's actually part of business. Or for example, if you do an interview with someone, they want to see the interview before it's published or before it's broadcast. And you don't do that in the States either. So th there were some very strange things here that really required, um, as a journalist, you had to sort of beat it back because Germans had a completely different expectation. Um, I also found that diversity is an issue here. You don't have as, as many diverse voices necessarily speaking. And that this is part of why I like to do TV appearances. Uh, you know, well, usually they hire, they bring me on as the American journalist or whatever you want to call it. But um, I, you know, I'm there at least. I'm a person of color who, you know, is is a different voice and not just a German voice. You know, especially 
old male German voice sitting at the at the table. Um, you you do see more females now, but it still to me is not a. I'm kind of shocked by the fact that there isn't more of a diverse culture to coverage. And I think it creates problems. I mean, this is why we have some really strange racial incidents, uh, you know, Bavarian uh, TV, I, I'm trying to remember what it was, it was blackface or something they had not too long ago. I mean, these sorts of things that you just wouldn't see in the U.S. as much anymore. So um, also, I think the, the coverage in Germany is much more international. I will say that. I mean, they're much more focused on international news. And it's very strange, even to my mother, as an immigrant to the United, I mean, she was, became an American citizen. She still is, even though she lives back in Germany, she just never switched back. But when we went back recently, she and I, she's looking at the TV going, do they ever cover international news? I mean, she just isn't used to that because in Germany, every hour you will get at least one or two international headlines, whether it's radio, you know, five minute news cut or news clip or whatever in the middle of music on the station or whether you look at TV at night. So I think also there is a much more international focus or like a global focus to how news is covered. So uh, those are some of the differences that I've noticed in the time that I've been here. You just reminded me of one of my favorite little tidbits about the news here. During football, soccer games, during the halftime, they show what is it, 10, 15 minutes of the news, the Taka show. And I just remember being so charmed by that when I first uh, discovered it. And it remains charming to me years later. That is something you would probably not see so often in the US. You would see commercials for Papa John's. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important, I mean, because even the whole culture is about news here. I mean, you have the flu shopping, which is that, you know, the mornings on Sunday mornings where you're used to get together. Now it's perhaps a little bit done differently, but men generally nowadays, I guess women would too, would get together for a drink at the local pub or whatever at uh, 11 in the morning to discuss affairs, like not just global or, I mean, you know, local events, but also sometimes global events, you know, and this, this was a tradition. There's even a word for it, you know, flu shop. And that is something you don't see in the States. I can't imagine people getting together. You can't even get people at the same dinner table anymore without ripping, you know, their, each other's eyes out or to discuss politics. Uh, It's still very much part of the culture here, even though I'm not, I, I don't mean that you don't have people here who are very diametrically opposed uh, on on issues. I mean, you know, you definitely have racism in Germany. That is a problem that has not gone away and it's going to take a while to go away. But there just is a much more inclination towards news. I I don't think journalists are going to be out of jobs here in any time in the foreseeable future the way we've seen in the United States where one outlet after another is closing. It's been a much slower uh, progression here, partly because the government subsidizes this. You know, you have uh, uh, tariffs and everything that you have to pay to watch TV and and, uh, listen to radio here, whether you do or not. Uh, It continues to support this. I mean, it's seen as a societal must to have that news influx in your life. And that's kind of, as a journalist, that's very warming, heartwarming and, and, and wonderful to see. The, the 20-some newspapers that I get in my library every day is not to be compared with what I used to offer in public libraries in the U.S. Germany, like you're saying, is still a place where people will get together and debate things in the morning and they'll still pick a fight with a stranger about if they like this newspaper or not. <laughs> yeah, you're right. There definitely is dissent in, in the society and there definitely is, there is division, just not to the extent uh, that we see in the United States where people take to guns and God knows what else to sort of settle their yeah. disagreements over <laughs> politics. So, yeah. 
let's round the corner and come to home with the ending segment, which is called Zack, Zack, Zack. So it is a rapid fire <laughs> question round where I ask you three questions that you answer without thinking it, overthinking it. Just go with your gut. Are you ready? I, I hope so. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This one I had to tweak uh, based on what you shared earlier. So what is your favorite clutch Zeitschrift, uh, more um, like um, gossip um, sort of grocery store new, uh, magazine in Germany? <laughs> I can't even think of one. I try not to read them anymore. Um, The only thing I do do periodically is is, uh, People Magazine online, just if I need to clear my head from whatever is going on, I will still (laughs) turn to that. But I don't have one in Germany. What is the grocery store snack when you're standing in the aisle, you're about to check out and you're like, "Mm, you know what, I will grab one of these. What is your weakness there? Probably popcorn, <laughs> microwave <laughs> popcorn, which I love. Sweet or salty then? Salty, follow-up. salty. Okay. Yep. <laughs> okay, and finally, if I could wave a magic wand right now and you and your family are going to just magically appear somewhere in the world right now for a week, where would you want to be magicked? Where would you like to go? Uh, Santorini. <laughs> it's a place I've always wanted to go to. And it's like on my bucket list and I've never been. So yeah, if, if I could do that, I certainly, I think because it's winter right now, yeah, that would be the answer. Very good. And one thing we didn't get to talk about in the episode is, um, well, you mentioned you have a, a new podcast. Tell us about it and where can people find it? Common Ground Berlin is the name. It's a talk show that focuses on civil debate about, uh, you know, hot button topics, whatever they might be, usually of interest in Germany and the U.S. both. I mean, because there are a lot of commonalities. So you can find it at anywhere you get your podcast or at the website commongroundberlin.com, all one word. And it sort of combines what I learned uh, as an NPR correspondent all those years and just sort of my experiences personally about how many diverging viewpoints there can be and and, uh, how do you come to some sort of uh, common ground, if you will, you know? Yeah. <laughs> on these topics. So we we uh, we address everything from uh, Danglish to, um, you know, heavy duty political topics, you know, Ukraine, we've done a number of, of, uh, of ones with Ukraine. And we also partner with German Marshall Fund once a month to do a version of Common Ground Berlin called Transatlantic Takeaway, where we focus more on transatlantic issues. And so, uh, so there's a whole potpourri of, of different kinds of topics you can listen to there. Every so often we'll do a story format like This American Life. So hopefully if people are interested, they'll find something that interests them to listen to on Common Ground. Yeah, Island. absolutely. I have to give a, a personal recommendation too, because I just, I really love it. It, it feels like listening to NPR, but about things that are so relevant to to my experience in my life here in Germany as an international. So I definitely think people who listen to the show could find a lot that they would enjoy in Common Ground Berlin. So of course, we'll link to that in the show notes. Thank you, Soraya, so very much for coming on and sharing with us about your very, very exciting life. Thank you so much, Nicole. I've had a great time. I don't often get to talk about myself, so this is fun. Thank you again to Soraya for coming onto the show. I've linked to Common Ground Berlin's website in the show notes. Make sure that you look them up after this and hit subscribe. One of their latest episodes is about non-German citizens' right to vote in Germany, which is a very interesting topic always, and especially right now because there were some recent votes in Berlin. Also, make sure you are subscribed to The Expat Cast. You can follow me on Instagram at The Expat Cast, and you can visit me online at theexpatcast.com. As always, I want to thank Amy Lungi Art for the logo. She's on Instagram at waxwaynebk. 
and side hug for the theme music there on Instagram at a hug from the side. On Thursday, I'll be back in your feeds with an interview with someone who is from Ukraine and moved to the Netherlands about 10 years ago. We talk about that move as well as how news out of Ukraine has impacted her experience. Till then, have a wonderful week. This done. Cheers.